0: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Seats. This is what I was made for. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had a moment when whatever you are doing, whatever activity you're engaged in, feels so exactly right? It feels like it comes from the core of who you are, that you think, this is it, this is what I was made for. This week I posted on Facebook and asked, asked people to tell me about a time when they had experienced that feeling. Some of them talked about experiences related to their work, so one of my high school teachers who was the faculty advisor of the student newspaper that I worked on, talked about the weekends that she spent in the newspaper office with us, guiding us through what she called the wondrously wobbly act of learning and growing. Or there was a pastor who spoke about that beautiful and holy moment when he held someone's hand as they died. Many others, though, spoke about things that had nothing to do with how they make a living, One friend found it was when she regularly began singing in choirs that she had her, this is what I was made for, moment. For someone else, it was playing with her grandchildren. Whenever and however they come, these moments are so precious when we think, this is what I was made for. But those moments can also be hard to come by and sometimes we're actually not all that good at realizing what we actually have been made for. So you might remember the movie Mr. Holland's Opus that came out back in the 1990s. Richard Dreyfus played Glenn Holland, who was a musician who's convinced that his life's work is to write a symphony. But writing symphonies doesn't exactly pay the bills. So he takes a job in high school teaching music. And as Mr. Holland spends more and more time with his students and with his family, he can spend less and less time composing. So years pass and then decades. And then when he is 60 years old, the school's principal calls Mr. Holland into his office and tells him that the school is discontinuing the music program. And Mr. Holland is totally deflated, because not only has he not realized his life's dream of composing a world-famous symphony, but he's got to end his career being let go from teaching high school music. But on his last day at the school, Mr. Holland walks into a surprise, because the whole school has gathered in the auditorium for a farewell assembly for him. And suddenly, in walks Gertrude Lang, who is the state governor. But Gertrude isn't just the governor. Gertrude is also the person who, way back when she was in high school, Mr. Holland had taught and mentored and believed in and helped develop from being maybe the world's worst clarinet player into at least a passable clarinet player. <laughs> So Governor Gertrude walks to the podium, and this is what she says. Mr. Holland had a profound influence on my life, on a lot of lives I know. And yet I get the feeling that he considers a great part of his own life misspent. Rumor had it he was always working on this symphony of his, and this was going to make him famous, rich, probably both. But Mr. Holland isn't rich, and he isn't famous, at least not outside our little town. So it might be easy for him to think himself a failure. And he would be wrong. Because I think he's achieved a success far beyond riches and fame. Look around. This, there is not a life in this room that you have not touched. And each one of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and notes of your opus and we are the music of your life. The audience erupts into wild applause and Gertrude invites Mr. Holland to come up to the stage and she hands him a conductor's baton and the stage curtains open to reveal an orchestra made up of current and former students who have all learned the symphony that Mr. Holland had written slowly across all of those years. So Mr. Holland takes the baton, and finally, at last, he gets to conduct his magnum opus. See, Mr. Holland spent most of his life thinking that he was made to be a composer, but what that final assembly showed him was that his greatest composition was to be found in the lives of the students who he had taught, mentored, championed, and believed in. And when Mr. Holland raises the baton and signals for the music to start, you can see on his face, joy. The joy that says, this is what I was made for. It turns out that Mr. Holland wasn't made for composing a symphony that would be played at Carnegie Hall. He was made for conducting the symphony of lives he touched over his decades teaching at John F. Kennedy High School. The joy on his face is unmistakable. This is what he was made for. Whenever we are doing what we were made for, there is joy because we were made by God and so when we're doing something that flows from that deepest part of who we are, then really what we're doing is reflecting the image of God that is in us. We are reflecting part of who God is and what God is like. We are reflecting God's presence in us. And as the French Jesuit priest Pierre Teilhard de Chardin famously said, joy is the infallible sign of the presence of God. And that kind of joy is praise. That's what Psalm 98 shows us. When we recognize who God is and what God is like, when we encounter the goodness of God's character, then praise flows as our natural response. The psalm begins with an invitation to the people to praise God. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Why? For he has done marvelous things. And then the psalmist goes on to recount God's mighty works on behalf of his people. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the, earth, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. That word salvation can also be translated as victory. The psalmist here is reminding the people that God is the one who rescued them, who has won victory for them. And in doing that, God has shown all the world what he is like, that he is righteous and steadfast in love and faithful. And then in the very next verse, the psalmist says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, break forth into joyous song and sing praises. The people have been reminded of who God is, what he has done and what he is like, and so their natural response should be praise abundant and joyful and noisy praise but what the psalmist describes for us is not one individual singing or playing a new song all on her own this is not a solitary voice singing about the wonders of god the the verbs here are plural the psalmist is talking to all the people of israel He calls for joyful songs from human voices and from lyres and trumpets and horns. The message translation of this psalm puts it this way. Shout your praises to God, everybody. Let loose and sing. Strike up the band. Round up an orchestra to play for God and add a hundred-voice choir. And it's not just the humans who are to praise God. Because the whole world gets in on the act. The sea, the rivers, the hills. This is all of creation composing a symphony together. The entire earth resounds with a new song declaring the praise of God and the joy of the Lord. And there are times for sure when this invitation to sing a new song should be taken literally with a song of praise. But I also think it's so much more than that. Because the Psalms invitation to sing a new song isn't just about how we might vocalize notes with our voices, it's about how we live all of our lives. Because praising God is so much more than saying words or singing songs. Praise is more than saying nice things about God. Praise is any time we live our lives in a way that honors and glorifies God. Theologian Walter Brueggemann puts this point so well when he says, all of life is aimed toward God and finally exists for the sake of God. Praise articulates and embodies our capacity to yield Submit and abandon ourselves in trust and gratitude to the one whose we are. In other words, when we're doing what we were made to do, then we are offering praise. Because ultimately, praise is what we were made for. And everything we do can be part of our praise, part of our response to the God who is righteous and steadfast, loving, and faithful. This month we've been talking about stewardship. And believe it or not, our stewardship is part of our praise. How we choose to care for and use the resources that God has entrusted to us can be a way that we praise God. Because stewardship is one of the things that we were made for. Or maybe more accurately, stewardship is the work that God made for us to do. It's clear. We see it so clearly in the story of creation. Because God creates the first humans and then he gives them this charge. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. In other words, God says... Steward the earth. Stewardship is part of what we were made for. There are lots of ways that we can steward the resources God has given us. We can steward them stingily or selfishly in a way that's focused on our own pleasure. But that would not be stewardship that praises God, because that would not be stewardship that reflects God's character. God is not stingy or selfish. God is generous. Generosity is at the heart of God's nature. It's certainly at the heart of the gospel, where we see that God gives his very self so that we can know the depths of his love for us and the freedom and the forgiveness that he gives us. God is generous, so God invites us to be generous. We were made for generosity. It's how God intends for us to steward the resources that we have been given. So what might it look like for us to live lives of generous stewardship? Certainly it would include our finances and our possessions, giving them freely so that they can be a blessing to other people. But a generous life is so much more than that. Have you ever encountered someone who is really, truly generous with their time and their attention? One of my pastor friends was telling me about a man named Dan, who was a former parishioner of hers. Dan was quite possibly one of the busiest people that my friend had ever known. He was the chief of anesthesiology at a prominent hospital, he was starting a nonprofit and working on an MBA. He also had a wife and young children and still somehow found time to play in the church band. But what my friend remembers most about Dan is that anytime time she was with him, Dan was present. He was present in a way that seemed to communicate that this moment and this conversation were the most important things to him right then. He was always fully attentive to the conversation, to what was being said and what was being left unsaid. And he never gave the impression that he was in a hurry for the conversation to end. Dan was incredibly generous with his time and his attention. And if you've ever met somebody like that, you know what a gift it is. We can also be generous with our words as we offer encouragement and affirmation and appreciation for others. I know this comes more easily to su- naturally for some people than others, but it's something that all of us can practice. Because people who are quick to speak sincere words of praise and encouragement are such a blessing, especially when we live in a time when criticism comes so fast and furious from so many directions. We can be generous with our time and our attention, our encouragement and affirmation. And we can also practice generosity with our knowledge or our experience or expertise. It can be tempting to to try to withhold those things from others. Because right? if we're the only one who knows how to do something, then we end up feeling needed and important. Or sometimes I think we fail to share our knowledge, our experience with other people because we just don't realize how much that might mean to them. So my friend Augusta described a situation like this in response to that Facebook query I mentioned. Augusta is an art educator at the National Gallery and she described a time when a friend was with her mother in the hospital. Her mother was waiting for emergency surgery. And the friend texted Augusta and said, send us pretty things to look at while we wait. And Augusta uh, wrote this. She said, i just taken a lot of art photos to prepare some teaching notes. So I ended up texting them snapshot after snapshot of some George Bellows paintings. We spent a couple hours chatting about the artwork and about how well Bellows understood what it means to be a human looking at things. Weirdly enough, it seemed to comfort them both, and I was so honored to have been able to be the conduit for that. When we're generous with our knowledge and our experience, we never know who it might bless. We can also be generous with our restraint. That might seem like a little bit of a contradiction in terms, but I think it's actually true. So think about when you're buying a car. You might choose to pay a little bit more to buy a hybrid car, or maybe you might choose to use public transportation when you could just as easily drive somewhere. These are ways of practicing restraint with our carbon dioxide emissions. And by doing that, we can help lessen global warming, which causes destruction to our planet in ways that disproportionately impact the poor. Or we can be generous with restraint in our words. The world probably does not need one more post on Facebook or Twitter or one more snide remark across the Thanksgiving table about who is really to blame for the mess that our country is in. Practicing generosity with restraint in our conversation can avoid hurting people and damaging relationships. There are so many ways that we can practice generosity. With our money, our time and attention, our encouragement, our expertise, even our restraint. And that's just a partial list. Ultimately, all of these forms of generosity are aspects of maybe the greatest kind of generosity that we can practice which is the generosity of love. And that draws us back to the truth we talked about earlier, that we are invited to be generous because God is generous. Our generosity is just a reflection, an imperfect, limited reflection of God's generosity. Because we worship a God who is abundantly, overflowingly generous. Generous with kindness, with faithfulness, with love, with his own self. God gives his spirit to dwell in us. As Paul writes in Ephesians, we can be filled with all the fullness of God. And it is the fullness of God in us, the presence of the Holy Spirit that God gives to us so generously that will shape our hearts to want to steward everything that God has given us with generosity. God is generous, and God will make us generous if we allow him to. In Mr. Holland's opus, what makes the symphony that the school orchestra plays at the end so beautiful is not the skill of the musicians, It isn't even the beauty of the composition itself. What makes it so beautiful is that the symphony is the embodiment of generosity. The generosity of the students and the alumni who gave their time and their skill to learn and to perform the music. But more than that, The symphony is the embodiment of the generosity of time and attention, care and love that Mr. Holland had showed to so many people over so many years. And because of that generosity, the symphony performed in the high school auditorium that day was an act of praise, an act of praise that brought Mr. Holland so much joy. As we live lives of generosity, we are also creating a symphony, the symphony of praise that Psalm 98 talks about. We are filled with all the fullness of God. So may our lives join together to create a beautiful and joyful symphony of praise, because that is what we were made for. Thanks be to God. Amen.